Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. So, hey, we're on our last week of the sermon series called Fasting. Uh, spoiler alert, okay, here's how the ending goes. You're going to be invited not to eat, okay? So that, just saying that's where we're going. Um, we've been talking about this over the last, like, several weeks. Really, the question isn't so much, like, what is fasting, but why, okay? Wh- why, would we, why would we abstain from eating? What does it do for us? What's its purpose? As we look in the scriptures, what's, a, what's its purpose in the Christian life? And so we've kind of been building on that over the last couple of weeks, and this will be kind of our final installment. Um, I have been, uh, you know, Pastor Kyle's a regular preacher. Uh, I get up here every now and, now and then and, uh, you know, do different sermon series and stuff like that. I just want to say this. Of all, that, all of my time preaching up here, I've never had so much chatter and feedback regarding a sermon series that I've ever done. And I don't think it's me. I think it's really like there's something about looking in the scriptures, there's something about this thing of fasting that has caused us as a people to wrestle with, where do I find myself in this? And what do I think about this? Some people who are like, have not been engaged. I've never really thought about fasting before. I don't know what it is. I've never done it before. And some people are like, like I've done it before, but uh, I've had some really bad experiences and I don't know what to make of that. And so I think that there's something here. Uh, Because of all the chatter, I just want to make a couple of uh, uh, quick comments before we kind of get into it. But I, I do want to be clear about this. I think number one, and again, over the last two sermons, I think we've been clear about this. Fasting is not about what you get from God. Okay, fasting isn't about what you get from God. Uh, you, you can't earn anything more in this life. Like Jesus has given it to you all. It's through him and him alone that we receive abundant eternal life and all the riches and pleasures that are waiting for us in the final place called heaven that will be on the new earth, okay? So this is about drawing near to God. It's about relationship, okay? It's about getting into that sacred space and, and being able to hear from God, commune with him, talk to him and hear from him and to live in this life what is gonna be our ultimate life when we're with him finally. So God does not need any extra motivation to bless you. You don't fast because he needs extra motivation, extra reason to give you a good life or bless you. If you're his son and daughter, he loves you and he has a good plan for your life, okay? Secondly, don't worry about failure. I know some of us, as we're thinking about fasting, can, can I do this? Can I not do this? What if I make a mistake? What if I slip? What if I fall? What, do I fum- what if I fumble? Hey, God is not looking for perfection here. God is not looking for you to check a box off. He doesn't need you to do this. And even in our attempts at living a life of faith, when we fail, God is always more powerful. God is always more powerful whenever we fall short. And so as I mentioned last week, I've been fasting over the last year. Have I been perfect? I'm going to tell you right now, another spoiler alert, no, okay? Let me just say, normally dinner times around 5.30 when I fast, sometimes at dinner times at like 4.15, okay? It's hard, all right? It's hard. It just is. We're going to fail. That's what we're doing in community is that we're here to support each other so we can continue to live a life of faith, not of one of perfection. And thirdly, fasting is about a lifestyle, Okay, this isn't a thing that we do this one time. Like fasting is part of and has always been part of the, the ancient church, a lifestyle of how do we live in rhythm with God? 
Okay, so when you're thinking about like, what is covenant, we're not, we don't need you to sign up because covenant needs to do a thing or have people fast over Lent. This isn't a box to check. We don't need certain percentages of our people to fast. What we want to do is we want to invite you into a lifestyle of fasting and prayer because it's what the church has always practiced. And so this isn't about just doing a thing or getting you to sign up. It's about inviting you to kind of see the why is bigger than just right now or this season. It's a lifestyle that draws us near to the Lord. So anyways, I've said enough, but hopefully, at least as I've, I've heard some things, hopefully that might answer some of the questions maybe you've had. All right, so this morning, I've got a question for you that I want you to think about and hold on to it because I'm going to bring it back up at the end, and then I've got a story to tell. The question for you is this. In the movie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, have you, have you heard? Everyone's seen that, right? If you have not seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, call your parents today and shame them for ruining your childhood. If you've seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the question is this. What makes Charlie different than the other four kids? Okay? What makes Charlie different than the other four kids? Think about that. We're going to return to that here at the end of my sermon. So, all right, here's my story for you. Uh, the SS City Cairo is a ship. All right, this ship actually left uh, Mumbai, India. Uh, this is back in uh, 1942. Uh, left Mumbai, India on its way to the UK in order to bring goods and people to the United Kingdom. Now it's 1942, so it's World War II. What happens? Well, a German submarine torpedoes the SS City Cairo and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. There's 101 passengers on it. And this ship was filled with timber, iron, cotton, pigs, and 2,000 boxes of silver coins. Now, why does this matter? Well, it sits at the bottom of the ocean until 20, or sorry, yeah, 2011. In 2011, uh, a company, Deep Sea Ocean Search, that it's, it's an innovative company that actually uh, scavenges and um, sort of, I, I guess, evaluates, scans, like the, the bottom of the ocean. They do deep sea diving sort of things. And they're into new technology. And how is it that we can potentially unearth what's sunk or hidden or lost at sea? Okay, this is kind of like what they do. They salvage shipwrecks. Uh, they've been down to the Titanic. And a lot of them, are sh their equipment kind of reaches like three to 4,000 meters deep. And I think the Titanic's like 3,800 meters deep. What's interesting and special about SS City Cairo, is that it was buried at 5,150 meters. No humans have ever scavenged or gone that deep in order to uncover what was lost at sea. Well, for two to three years, the Deep Sea City, our Deep Ocean Search Company, sent their equipment to as far down as deep as they can to uncover this treasure. And it kept on breaking down. Their equipment kept on breaking down. So they have to bring it back up. They got to fix it. They got to re-innovate, right? They got to put in tons of manpower and effort and energy and finances into this equipment in order to uncover this. And finally they do, and it takes actually two years to finally uncover all of these silver coins from the bottom of the ocean. Now, why would they do this? Why would they take so much time? Why would they go where no human had ever gone before? Well, because there's the promise of treasure, because there's a promise of something, some great reward at the expense of effort and energy put into a thing. You see, we live our lives on promises. You live your life on promises. I live my life on promises. Something promises you something that you should 
invest your finances, invest your time, that you should change your life trajectory from living this way to that way because of a promise. I mean, marriage is probably, you know, at the pinnacle of this, right? Like you're living as a bachelor or bachelorette. You live your life for yourself. You do whatever you want. And along comes that special somebody. And you're like, I'm going to give up all of my freedom in order to now be like connected to this person, right? And I can no longer just do whatever I want. I now got to do something with somebody else. I'm going to attach, be attached to the hip, right? But the promise is that the, the potential for intimacy and love and relationship in marriage is greater than whatever you can have as a bachelor person, right? That's a promise. We change jobs on promises. This job is going to pay me more. There's going to be more freedom or a better work environment, right? This is going to be better for my career. Promises. We go on trips from this destination to this destination because there's better promises. We make investments with our time and money from one place to another because of better promises. Promises are sacred. God knows this. God made it this way. And what lies at the heart of the Christian faith is a promise. A promise of unending eternal intimacy with our Heavenly Father, our Creator. To be known and loved fully and wholly for who we are. To be able to have abundant life with Jesus and His people in heaven on the new earth. These are sacred things. And that's why when someone breaks a promise to you, you don't shrug your shoulders and say like, oh, no big deal. You're deeply wounded and hurt because promises are sacred things. All right, so our big idea this morning is this. Our longings cannot be satisfied in this world. Therefore, fasting cultivates the character necessary to wait for true fulfillment. Let me say it again. Our longings cannot be satisfied in this world. You have longings and desires in your life, in your heart, that this world cannot meet and was never meant to meet. Therefore, fasting cultivates the character necessary to wait for the true promise to be fulfilled. You see, fasting isn't just about being presently minded, which has been our last two weeks. Fasting is also about being future-oriented, and that's what today is about. So let's pick up in the scriptures in Luke chapter 5. Jesus has a conversation with some Pharisees, some religious leaders, about fasting. Let's read here, starting verse 33. And they, these are the religious leaders, and they said to him, that's Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and, often, uh, and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it onto an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts on new wine, puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. No one, after drinking, uh, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. All right, what's going on here? Let's start with this parable first. All right, got an old garment, got a new cloth, right? You can't put the new patch on the old garment because it'll tear away. You got old wineskins, put new wine in the old wineskins. I guess as it ferments, it probably bloats it and then explodes, something like that. Um, I've never really fermented wine before, but I'm guessing that that's how it works. What Jesus is really saying in this parable is that what was former, all right, can't hold what is now new. 
What is presently true can't hold, can't be held by what was in the past. So fasting was one of the ways that Jewish people identified themselves as Jews. Jewish, real Jewish people, if you're really part of the uh, faith, you fast. That's why the religious leaders are saying, we all fast. John, who's a prophet, all of his disciples fast. And they're looking at Jesus, who's the Jew of Jews, and saying, your disciples don't fast. Like, what's the deal? Like, what's going on? Well, for them, it was like these identity badges. It was a way of kind of marking out who you are. You know, there's like some families, like, you know, the, the hunting family, right? Like, whatever that activity that they do equates to, be, you know, if you're a real miller, then you hunt, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if there's a miller in here that hunts, but, you know, if that's who you really are, right, at your core, then if, if you're a miller, then you'll hunt. And if you hunt, then you're a part of our clan, right? There's a synonymousness to the behavior with the association with the community, with the people, right? Your family probably has something like that. Hey, we're Michigan fans. Hey, we're Ohio State fans, right? And if you are a Michigan family and someone from your family becomes an Ohio State fan, you're like, get out of here. You don't belong, right? And so what they're saying is, if you belong, you'll fast. And what Jesus is saying is that the way you thought about fasting doesn't fit today under the new circumstances, all right? That's what he's setting up here. What's going on? He's got this illustration of a wedding feast, okay? We've been at weddings before, right? So you, you know, not your wedding, but think of somebody else's wedding, right? You get there early before the bride and groom show up, and you have to sit at a table and make small talk with people you don't know very well, eating dry vegetables and crackers while you wait for them to show up. And you're like, I guess this is okay, but like we're waiting for the real feast and dancing to begin, right? But you don't celebrate before the bride and groom get there. It doesn't make sense. It would be inappropriate to begin like breaking, uh, you know, open the wine and eating the delicious, you know, chicken or whatever is like being served or the steak or whatever on the fancy silverware until the bride and groom come. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the bride and groom. He said, when I am present, then it's time to celebrate and feast. And when I'm absent, it's not yet time. So prior to Jesus coming in the Old Testament, it was not yet time. And fasting had its place because it created these longings and this looking forward to the deliverance of Israel and the promise of the Messiah to rescue them out of their situation, to save them from their sins. Presently, in this story, Jesus walked the earth. And Jesus' disciples knew, like, the Messiah is here. The kingdom has come in the person of Jesus. Now is the time to celebrate. Now is the time to party. Now is the time to get excited. And what, and what does he say to them? He says, and when I leave, because Jesus died, he rose again, and then ascended to heaven, which is where he's seated now in bodily form next to at the right hand of the heavenly father. That's where he is now. He's no longer here with us. He said, now my disciples fast. Why? Because we're longing for the real fulfillment. We're longing for the day when he will finally show up again to bring the fulfillment of his kingdom. So fasting isn't a way of saying, hey, I fast, that makes me a true Christian. Fasting is a way of saying, hey, it's not yet time to party. We're not there yet. And we're waiting for that final day when he does come because then there'll be no more fasting and it'll be time to go. Thomas Ryan says this, fasting is one of the ways the servants of Jesus keep themselves alert in this future-oriented waiting until the bridegroom returns. Again, fasting is one of the ways the servants of Jesus keep themselves alert in this future-oriented waiting until the bridegroom returns. You know, I wonder sometimes, 
amongst myself I, when I think about leading, being a part of like God's people, why do we not talk about heaven more? Why do we not talk about the new earth more? Why do we not get excited thinking about that day to come when all the pain that we have and all the illness and all the sickness and all the ways that our desires aren't met in this life, why are we not looking forward more to the day when Jesus will come and everything will be whole, everything will be complete, every longing that we have will be met and fulfilled. We will live into and be our true selves, fully loved and fully known the way God created it to be. And I think sometimes it's because we so much love this earth, right? We so much love the little bit that we get here that we just have our eyes set on this present moment when really we're made to look future-oriented and to keep ourselves alert and waiting for that day when Jesus will finally come in his fullness. And in this way, abstaining from food creates this hunger. Abstaining from food puts a little fire in the belly to say, it's not here, it's there. It's in the future, right? All right, promises are important. We're waiting for the promise of Jesus to come again. But we also fast to protest. Uh, the French are known for protesting. I mean, they've had like a thousand revolutions, right? Like, we don't like the government anymore. Let's just overthrow them, you know? We don't like this government. Let's overthrow them. The French have had some great protests. Let me tell you about one of them. Uh, so there was a small village that was trying to form a school, and they were one pupil shy of forming this school, right? They want to have a school in their town. They're one pupil shy of being able to form the school. This is back in 2017, so not too long ago. And the French government said, no, no school. However you would say that in French, you would say it like that. No school, you're one person shy. And the French in this town, they were like, no, we've actually got somebody. His name is Vincent. And here's the school picture right here. They put a backpack on Vincent, sent him off to school. They, they were able to form their school. There's something about protesting, right, that's great. Some of us are made this way. We don't like the man. We want to find the man and stick it to him. We don't like the system because we want to overthrow it. And some of us are made that way. Uh, just recently, um, my youngest son, who's probably like our, our most sweetest, most just uh, conducive child of all four of ours, all right, he, he, he always kind of goes with the flow and always wanting to please me and Allie. And so um, in the morning, Allie takes a, the three orders to middle school, and then I'm just kind of left with Griffin, getting him ready, and then I'll drop him off at school. And on this particular morning, well, the day before, Allie had bought some chocolate waffles. On this particular morning, he woke up and he was like, I was like, what do you want for breakfast? I say to everyone, what do you want for breakfast? He's like, I want a chocolate waffle. I said, well, those are for dessert. Like, that's not appropriate for breakfast. We've got to choose something else, you know? How about some oatmeal, you know, or some bran bread or something, you know? Some cereal. And he was like, immediately, like, his whole demeanor changed. He was mad. He was like, uh, like, no. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking to you, like, whatever. Well, then I started feeling guilty. And so I'm like, well, you know, how about these cereals? And he's like, no. And I'm like, well, buddy, like, you can't have the chocolate waffles, but we do have normal waffles that I can dribble, uh, drizzle syrup all over if you want that. <laughs> At this point, I'm like, I'm not going to cave in, but I'm going to cave in kind of, right? And he was like, no, I'm not having it, right? I'm not having it. I want the chocolate waffle. This is protesting. I refuse to be satisfied with what you're giving me. Well, as... Christians, we can protest the current conditions of our world. 
and the ways in which our current conditions tell us to be entertained, to be satisfied in this life. And we can say, no, it's not good enough. And there's some of you that are like this. You're like, you're, I'm not like this. I, I like following rules. Some of you are like, I don't want to follow rules. I want to rebel. Well, let's talk about how you can rebel against this world in a way that isn't fitting with your Christian life. There's this prophetess, Anna. We normally read this at Christmas, but I think we should bring it up again. Uh, let's read this here in Luke chapter 2. All right, so Jesus is brought to the temple. He's a baby with his uh, Mary and Joseph, his mom and dad, brought him into the temple in order to, to recognize his birth and have him as, kind of a, officially recognized like by the community of Israel at this time. So there's this woman, Anna. All right, let's read about this. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. All right, so Anna is at this temple for years, praying and fasting. What She was one of the people waiting for the redemption of God's people. And she lived this life in, in this posture with the way that she lived on a daily basis of, I am forward-looking, I am future-oriented to when God fulfills his promise. All right, we're told that she's a prophetess. Now, what's important to realize is that prophets kind of live typically an alternative lifestyle, right? They typically tend to like rebel against like whatever's like we're normal. John the Baptist, who we'll read about here in Luke, uh, you know, in a little bit, if you keep reading through your Bible, I mean, he lived out in the wilderness and he ate honey and like locusts, right? He's kind of a strange dude. There's this uh, prophet Ezekiel uh, in the Old Testament. I mean, he, as a way of protesting the way Israel was living the life and worshiping other idols, he like laid on like one side of his body for like a hundred some odd days and then turned over and laid the other side of the body. I don't think he was wearing any clothes. Like these prophets, like Daniel, he didn't eat for a long time. Like they did radical things. So Anna is like, hey, she's a single woman right here. here. She gets married. And in seven years, her husband passes away. She's probably maybe in her 20s. So she's still got a life ahead. And what was the culture going to tell her? Get married, make a home, be happy. And she says, I've got better things ahead of me. There's better things that God has in store. And she lives this life saying, I am waiting for God to fulfill his final promises to us, the people of Israel. Now, I'm not saying that that's the way we all should live, but there's this place where fasting is a protest against the current conditions of our world, that we're able to say, it's not here. It's not here. I've got enough time to do this. I'm going to jack with your theology a little bit. Sometimes uh, it, we get confused re reading the Old Testament. In the last two weeks, we've been reading Old Testament stories of fasting, and a lot of times, like, these stories are about, like, current salvation. This nation is coming against Israel, and they're going to, like, overtake us. They're going to destroy us. And so the people uh, humble themselves. They put themselves before the Lord. They fast and pray, and they say, save us. And it's confusing because sometimes we take that Old Testament story and we try to lay it into our current reality without realizing that our current reality goes through the person and work of Jesus, realizing the kingdom has partially come to us but not yet fully. And so what we do inappropriately is we associate Israel in the Old Testament with America. America is not Israel. 
Israel is God's people. When you read the Old Testament, Israel, you should think the church, God's people, those who belong to him. And sometimes what we do is that we look at this and say, how am I to fast to gain in this life? No, we fast because we look to God to provide ultimately for us. And the values of America are not in line with the values of the kingdom of God that are set forward in scripture. We, America doesn't value the same things. Independence is one of them. That is not a kingdom value. We are community oriented. And I could list a whole bunch. And so sometimes it feels wonky because we're like, oh, I should fast for something like right now, like here. Or I should, I should fast in order to save what's going on right here. No, we fast because we look forward to the time when God's final kingdom comes to the earth. When you read through Revelation and you read through Babylon and you read through Rome and the things that Babylon and Rome are about, that is what our society is about. And we're not saying we're anti-government. We love America. We love our people. We want to be, and we are taught in scripture to be for our country, all right, for the well-being, but we just in our minds can't associate Israel with America. They're different things, all right? Israel is God's people, and in the New Testament through Jesus, God's people is the church, and we live an alternative lifestyle because we're looking for an alternative kingdom to be finally fulfilled when Jesus shows up again. And so this protest, maybe less for others, it's even for ourselves to say, I don't belong to this world. And I don't belong to the, the, the values of this world. Scott McKnight says this, Christians fasted because they longed for Christ to return. Such fasting is body hope. We embody our hope by protesting the present conditions of this world. We protest this aesthetic life, this aesthetic life that's about beauty. You know, when I've been fasting, as I said over the past year, like it's come up in conversation, like, hey, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm like I can't eat lunch today, I'm like fasting. People just assume, oh, hey, so are you like trying to lose weight? No. Um, are you trying to get healthier? Uh, no, maybe I should, but no, that's not the reason. Like I'm not fasting in order to gain something bodily now. I'm fasting because I'll tell people like, because I, I want to find more, more of my life in God. I don't know what that looks like, but that's what I'm heading towards. And that's a con completely contradictory way of thinking about abstaining from food. All right, I'm fasting not to gain more now, but to gain all that God has in store for us in the future. We've been looking at this slide uh, kind of week after week because we're trying to look at like where's the sacred life and where the, uh, you know, where's the fulfillment come from and how does fasting fit into it? Our sacred moment is promise. We're promised by God salvation and eternal life and abundance in him. And we want the result of that. We want it to come true. We want fulfillment. We want all of that is our, that is to be ours as promised by God to come to us. Well, fasting moves us into the space of having spiritual vision, being future-oriented, thinking beyond this present life and this present circumstances, and cultivates this character of patience and protesting. Being patient and waiting for God to deliver to us what he's promised us, and protesting when our world says, hey, why don't you veer off the God path and just kind of find yourselves amused right here? And we say, no, we will not do that. But we look to God through his faithfulness to his son Jesus to give us all that he's given us. I'm gonna show you a passage here in Ephesians. Have you ever talked to somebody and they've been super excited? Like they're so excited about a thing, like they don't pause to breathe to tell you about it, you know? 
I can't wait to just tell you about my, you know, my experience on this vacation and all that happened to me. And then they just kind of like keep on going and going. They don't really pause or wait. They don't even know if you're even listening or not. They just kind of keep rambling. Well, so Paul starts the, uh, the letter to Ephesians with this giant long run-on sentence here. Uh, and actually in the original Greek, there really is no pauses. There's no breakup of thought. It's just sort of like this run-on sentence because he gets really carried away that everything that the church has for them in Christ and all that's coming for them in him. And we're going to take a look at the last three verses here of this sort of really long, long, long run-on sentence. We're in verse 11. And it says, In him, meaning in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. So he's saying, hey, you heard this good news, this promise, and you believed in him. The gospel of your salvation. Oh, and you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so what Paul is saying is, is that you have an inheritance coming to you, all of you, all of us who are part of the family of God, we have an inheritance coming to us, the riches that are in Christ. It belongs to us equally if we are son and daughter and we share in him. We don't yet have it. We haven't yet taken possession of it, not yet, but we have the Holy Spirit who is a down payment on that promise, a guarantee that God will deliver it what, when he comes again. And so you would not sell that inheritance that can never be lost, will never diminish, will never fade away for something that you can have right now, today, that will fade away, that will be lost. That would be foolish. I ask you what made Charlie different than the other four. If you know the story, you know that the other four couldn't help themselves. They're going through the chocolate factory and like any kid, you know, you're a gust of gloop and you're like, chocolate river, let's just swim and bathe in that thing, right? And then is it uh, is Veronica? No, Veruca. She's the one that has, has a golden egg and she gets sent down to the dumpster heap. Violet can't help but chew gum and blow up like a big blueberry. Mike, whose pride wants him to go beyond what is actually capable of a human being, right? But in every way, Charlie says no. In every way, Charlie says, I want something better. Now, he doesn't know that the chocolate factory is going to be his, but if he's patient, if he waits for what is better, it'll be delivered to him. And even when he thinks he's going to lose it, he's got that everlasting gobstopper in his hand, right? He's from a poor family, if he's willing to go and give it to Willy Wonka's rival, he'll get a stack of money in this life that his family needs. He sets it down on the desk and walks away. Because he would not take or would not exchange what is greater for what is lesser. And fasting reminds us we will not exchange what is greater for what is lesser. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you cast our spiritual eyes on you, Jesus? 
You are the ruler of all rulers, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And we're told in the scriptures, in your time, God, you will make every enemy lay at your feet. You promise for those who are your friends, who are your sons and daughters, who are your brothers and sisters, that we will get to share in all of your riches for that which is eternal, which that is abundant, which that is real life and real goodness. And God, we can just get really lost in the weeds. We can really forget quickly as we go about our days and we just feel harassed by the bills and the distractions and the things that we're trying to gain in this life. And so God, would you teach us, would you grow in us a character that would set that aside, that we would follow you and we would fully, with our whole body, look forward to the day when you arrive again. And on that day, where the celebration will never end. Amen.